Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United States, Spain, India, Greece, Venezuela, and a see you in hell that's the celebration of a dead fascist or right-wing figure in Portugal and Argentina. I'm going to start out with the United States. The big news on the right-wing in the United States, or at least the big news on the right-wing media sphere in the United States, is the dismissal of Tucker Carlson from Fox News last Friday. I talked about this a little bit in my episode on Tuesday, so if you want to hear about that more in depth, go and check out that episode. But the short version is that Tucker Carlson is, or was, the leading light, the leading figure of Fox News. He was one of the biggest talking heads on the right wing ever. Fox News' most popular correspondent, the most popular leader, the most popular media representative. And he was dismissed from the company this Monday. New information has come to light about exactly why they did that. Apparently, some of his texts to other people involved in the Fox News company came public. They became public in the wake of the Dominion lawsuit that Fox News is facing. Now, this is a lawsuit that Dominion, a company that makes voting machines, has made against Fox News for defamation about the voting machines that it makes. Fox News settled that lawsuit last week for a whole bunch of money, uh, for like an extremely massive amount of money. And it turns out that some of his texts were made available to the members of Fox News and also to other attorneys in this proceeding. And these texts were really incendiary, and they were specifically about Fox News executives and also people on the right wing in general. Specifically, Tucker Carlson apparently used the C word and the B word to refer to company executives at Fox News and also Trump advisors. And so he was removed for that reason. He was also likely part of the reason that the Fox settled the Dominion lawsuit. They didn't want him to testify. They didn't want him to go on, on the stand talking about any of the things that he said. Further news in the United States, there has been an audio leak that links Ted Cruz to plans to overthrow the federal government on January 6th. Apparently, Ted Cruz was trying to promote a particular plan, like a particular legal and bureaucratic strategy, in order to enable the Republican Party to remain in power, to remain in the executive branch in the United States in the wake of Donald Trump's loss to Joe Biden in 2020. Now, this is a plan that Ted Cruz did sort of publicly float after the, the audio that, that these leaks represent. But the fact is that these leaks show that he was trying to promote it privately. You know, he was trying to get it through the channels that could get it in front of Donald Trump or other Trump advisors. This kind of looks to me like an apparatchik guy who's trying to get in on the ground floor of a potential new coup government, right? He's trying to get in on the action, trying to help plan the legal side of the coup in order to be able to get a plumb position from Trump in this, you know, new government by some whatever special executive emergency committee or whatever it is that Trump would have called it if he had been successful in staging his coup. Moving on to Spain, some good news. The Spanish government has removed the body of José Antonio Primo de Rivera, who is the leader and founder of the Falange, the fascist group in Spain, from his official and sort of like commemoratory burial site. So José Antonio was the leader of the Falange during the 
time immediately prior to the Spanish Civil War in the 1920s and 30s. And he was a leading light of fascism in general, in not just Spain, but in Europe as a whole. He was killed by leftist Republican forces in Spain in the very, very, very beginning of the Spanish Civil War. And the party that he founded eventually came to be one of the, the leading pillars of the Franco government in Spain from the time of the Civil War up until the mid-20th century. And this got José Antonio a primo spot in the like commemoratory burial ground that the Spanish government made for the fascists. This place was called the Valley of the Fallen, and it was also formerly the resting place of Francisco Franco himself. The Spanish government today has been removing the, you know, actual fascists from this commemoratory government burial site. And so removing Jose Antonio from it is a step in the right direction. Moving on to India, the former opposition leader of India, a man named Rahul Gandhi, is in legal limbo. Recall that Gandhi was removed from the Indian Congress, not the party of the Indian Congress, but the Indian legislature, I mean, because of a defamation charge against him, which involves him referring to the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, as a thief. However, Modi's surname in India is a protected sort of sub-racial ethnic category, and so the Indian court held that he was defaming this entire group of people as opposed to the Prime Minister himself. So Gandhi has already been brought up on that charge, and he's already been found guilty and ex removed, expelled, from the Indian legislature. Now he's in a sort of legal limbo because a couple other provinces have also brought him up on the same charge. And the question is currently, can he be tried for the same thing in multiple provinces at once? This could extremely complicate his attempts to return to the Indian legislature and continue to contest the power of Modi's BJP in the upcoming Indian parliamentary elections. Moving on to Greece, a man named Kassidiaris, who is the former leader of Greece's largest and most successful fascist party, Golden Dawn, has said that he is going to try to form his own new right-wing party. Golden Dawn was briefly Greece's third largest party in 2015. This was during Greece's extremely big and quite terrible and honestly still ongoing political and economic crisis related to its relationship with the Eurozone and the, how that fits into or really doesn't fit into the Greek economy and the desires of Greek leftist parties to create a non-neoliberal welfare state. So Kassidiaris was a member and leader of Golden Dawn, Greece's largest fascist party, and by all accounts, probably the most successful, at least parliamentarily successful, fascist party in Europe in the 21st century. And, and by fascist, I don't mean like fascist in the way that, you know, Giorgio Maloney in Italy is a fascist or in the way that Marianne Le Pen is a fascist. I mean, like Golden Dawn, like uses swastikas and does the fascist salute and like marches up and down the streets in boots and like burns stuff and assassinates people. Like they're a fascist party without any question whatsoever. And for a brief period of time, they were the country's third largest political party. They were banned from Greece and now hold no parliamentary offices in that country. They were banned because of participation in violence. Uh, specifically, they murdered one of Greece's most popular music artists back uh, a couple of years ago. But Kassidiaris is now, even though he's been charged with being involved in a bunch of these things, he's trying to get involved in parliament again. He has been working with other right-wing parties, but now he is forming his own new 
right-wing party again. It's going to be called the National Party. Greece's parliament is now trying to prevent him from running in this party. It's trying to ban the National Party because it's clearly just an attempt to rebrand Golden Dawn. However, it's, you know, it's proving legally complicated to prevent him from returning to parliament again at all. Finally, in Venezuela, uh, a man named Juan Guaido, who was the leader of the Venezuelan opposition and has been claiming for years to be the legitimate president of Venezuela, has now been essentially expelled from pretty much every place that he tried to find refuge for his supposed government in exile. Um, He is now in Miami, having fled Colombia, the neighboring country of Venezuela, in an attempt to bolster support for his supposed government in exile. Finally, in Brazil, a formal investigation has begun regarding the capital invasion in that country on January 8th of this year. Recall that on January 8th of this year, supporters of Jair Bolsonaro, the former president of Brazil, invaded all three capital buildings in Brazil and apparently attempted to try to get the military of Brazil to intervene and create a military government instead of the current government run by the Workers' Party and President Lula. Now, the creation of this formal investigation committee on Wednesday is a real escalation of this investigation. It means that it's not just the federal police, it's not just the electoral tribunal of Brazil, you know, the legal apparatus of Brazil, the the, the judicial apparatus of Brazil that deals with these questions. It means that the legislature is getting involved itself. This means that the Brazilian government is getting serious about creating a, a real, permanent, and very public record about what this invasion meant, who planned it, who was involved, and all that sort of thing. So we're going to see more from that committee as it comes. Bolsonaro himself, the former president that this attempted coup was in the name of, has also been involved in these investigations. He has testified this week to the federal police of Brazil about the people who stormed the capital on January 8th. Although, uh, if you remember, Bolsonaro himself was not in Brazil on January 8th. He fled the country on December 31st, right ahead of the inauguration of Lula, his successor. He fled Brazil and went straight to Miami, Florida, and then Orlando. He spent a lot of time in Florida and has only just returned to Brazil, like just, just, just a couple weeks ago. He was actually in the hospital for complications relating to a stabbing that he got when he ran for president the first time. He was actually in the hospital on January 8th itself. Finally, going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we got a twofer. We're celebrating the end and the death of two right-wing figures. And this first one is a little bit different than, than, than other things that I've talked about previously. This is actually a celebration. We are celebrating the end of the Estado Novo, the corporatist, quasi-fascist dictatorship of Portugal. This event, the end of this dictatorship, is called the Carnation Revolution. It is so named because restaurant workers would go out and give carnations to the people participating in the revolutionary demonstrations. This happened on April the 25th, 1974. Prior to this, Portugal had been ruled by the right-wing Estado Novo for over 50 years. This was run by an integralist Catholic dictator named Salazar, from the 1920s until the late 1960s. After that, his successor took over and his successor was significantly less successful at holding together this coalition. 
Additionally, throughout the 1960s and 70s, Portugal, the last remaining major African colonizer, like into the early 1970s, Portugal held major, like huge, big African colonies, for example, in Mozambique, Angola, parts of the Congo, Sao Tome and Principe, etc. Portugal was waging a major colonial war in order to prevent their independence. The Carnation Revolution was initiated by Portuguese military officers who were opposed to the oppressiveness of the Estado Novo, but they were then joined by millions of Portuguese civilians, and they also cooperated directly with the anti-colonial militants who had been trying to achieve independence for their colonized countries. The result of the Carnation Revolution was the Portuguese transition to democracy. Portugal remains a very strong democracy. And also, finally, the decolonization of all the remaining Portuguese colonial possessions. With the exception of Macau, the Portuguese equivalent of Hong Kong, which they only finally transferred to the People's Republic of China in the super-duper late 20th century. Moving on to Argentina, the other person I want to celebrate the death of is a man named Jose Félix Uriburu. Uriburu was Argentina's first big 20th century dictator, a right-wing corporatist nationalist. He was born in Argentina in 1868 in Salta, which is in the super-duper north of Argentina. And he was related to a series of Argentine elites, including an eventual president, uh, another Jose Uriburu, this time Jose Evaristo Uriburu. Uh, Jose Félix Uriburu uh, joined the military as a cadet, as a youth, and did some political activism against various revolutions. He climbed the military staff and leadership throughout his life. He, for example, was the attaché of the Argentine military to Germany and the United Kingdom, extremely prestigious positions in the Argentine military. And then in 1930, after Argentina had finally enacted full universal male suffrage, he staged a coup against uh, the president of Argentina, Hipólito Irigoyen. By some counts, Irigoyen was the first fully democratically elected president in the country because he was the first one elected after universal secret male suffrage. But Irigoyen was extremely unpopular among elites, partly because of his handling of the economic problems that Argentina was facing due to the Great Depression, which had begun in the late 1920s. However, Uriburu was also specifically opposed to Irigoyen's liberalism. Uriburu was a nationalist, conservative, Catholic corporatist who wanted to reorganize Argentina along the lines of essentially the extremely most conservative right wing of Catholic politics. His regime was the first in a series of repressive military governments in Argentina. It included repression, and by repression I mean like murder, of the radical left in Argentina, of radical members of the labor movement. He ended universal secret ballot. He began what is in Argentina called the Decada Infama, the infamous decade, more or less corresponding to the 1930s, which was a period of major political and economic upheaval that by most counts really only ends with the presidency of Juan Perón in the 1940s. Uriburu could not see out his attempt at this revolution. After his coup in 1930, he suffered a series of health problems and eventually granted power to a subordinate, Augustin Justo, and he granted this, this power to Justo in 1932. He went to Paris and died there of complications from a surgery related to his stomach cancer. He died this week in history, the 29th of April, 1932. So, Jose Félix Uriburu, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. 
I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right, that's H I S T of the right, and fascism 15. All right, thanks very much, and I will talk to you next week. <laughs>